dialed in to Talking Into Infinity, a Dream Theater podcast. Follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for schedules of live upcoming broadcasts where you can be a part of the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Talking Into Infinity, a Dream Theater podcast. I am your host, John. Brian is on vacation tonight. He's actually gigging. He's doing his dueling piano thing, so uh, he's out making money. But uh, I figured while he's gone... I'm going to have a good time. So I have an awesome guest tonight who will be joining us in just a second. Uh, Dream Theater fans will know him as the guy who novelized The Astonishing, their kick-ass concept record from 2016, uh, Mr. Peter O'Rulian. He also novelized Jordan Rudis's, uh solo record, Wired for Madness. He novelized the title track, that huge, epic 30-minute 30-minute masterpiece, and uh, he is also a uh, an acclaimed author. He has written the Vault of Heaven series, the Unremembered Trial of Intentions, a uh, huge batch of short stories, many of which are set in the Vault of Heaven universe. So uh, without further ado, let's bring him on. Uh, Peter, what's going on? Thanks for joining the show, man. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Anytime to talk uh, about Dream Theater is a good time. <laughs> right? So, you know, I'm just going to jump right into it and, you know, getting some background here. So... If if I read this correctly, you're one of the real, real, real hardcore fans. You have been with the band, like you were a fan ever since when Dream and Day Unite. Am I am I right in saying that? I was. Yeah. I mean, I didn't um I didn't have that record the day it released, but I came into that record as it was kind of underground with prog fans. Um and it, you know, I had the same experience I think a lot of people have when when James joined the band. It just and their their writing matured, and I went from casual fan to kind of um, fanatic. <laughs> <laughs> so how did so it, how did you find the band back then? Because obviously, you know, the first record was on Mechanic, and it was not widely released. So how did you discover it? I was in a band um, at the time, and we were probably the only sort of prog metal type of band in town. And so, but we, there were other fans of the genre and we would just pass things around, you know, we'd get them on cassette with uh, weird bootlegs, demo things. And I don't even remember who handed it to me. Um, you know, we were more of a Queensryche style band, um, but it, you know, it was all, all kind of in the family. And um even then, like all of us were kind of in awe of the technical facility. Um, and I and I think Charlie was a, a great vocalist. In fact, I think he's better later when he came back and did sort of the big reunion show. I think he was actually better then than he was on the record yep. uh, early. But um, that's how it was. Uh, I don't remember the guy who handed it to me, um, but it was all, you know, there's always that strata of um, really deep nerd geek on all things prog. And I was part of that. <laughs> nice. So, I mean, I mean, this is 1989. So, I mean, it, their musicianship obviously is still crazy to this day. But, you know, I have to assume that back then it was even more wild to hear something like that because you're still, you know, kind of in like, you know, the yes, you know, they, they were doing kind of like their 80s thing. And, you know, Genesis was kind of more in a pop direction. So that, I have to imagine that Dream Theater back then to hear that sound was really revolutionary. And you're like, what in the hell is this? Yeah, it, you know, the the most popular band that, that had more of a heavy feel to it was Queensryche. But but they were never nearly so technical. Um, 
in early interviews, John would, would reference other metal groups like Metallica as in a way to describe the, the edge that they had. Um, but there, there really just weren't very many bands um, that, that were combining the technical facility with the, the really heavy stuff, but also then the, the dynamic changes. Because even back then, they would kind of release into a breakdown section that was, you know, very prog-like in terms of um, instrumentation and feel. Um, you know, th- th- so they were, they were the unicorn and um, they quickly became the band Emulate, but that, which was a, you know, an impossible task uh, because, I mean, even today with all of the really, really great bands, um, and we, I don't know if we'll talk about this, but it's, it's not just the ability, it's the songwriting. Um, so they, they marry all of the, the technical ability with the ability to write a really good song. And, and honestly, that's the thing that sets them apart. It's not wizardry with what they play. It's the ability to use that to translate to musical ideas. At least that, that's my opinion. No, I, I completely agree with that. I've, I've said that a lot is that um, the, the term that I've used uh, is at the very least, it's like there's a melodic anchor. There seems to be, there's always like something that they latch onto and then they'll go off into the stratosphere and do all this other stuff. But then it always seems to come back to that thing that kind of roots you in the basis of the song. Um, and, you know, one, one of my buddies has a popular internet radio show on the weekends and we debate all the time. He says, we, we actually asked John Pertucci this exact question. Like I got to interview him with him and he said, so, I, I say that you guys are incredibly undisciplined songwriters. And I said, I think you're incredibly disciplined because it takes an unbelievable amount of skill within you know the realm of just songwriting to keep someone's attention for that long. So, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think that's so incredible that they do that. It's, um, it's a, it's a impossible debate to win because the, the person's on, on the other side is intractable, but that the idea that, you know, sweet picking and technical uh, flourishes and that these kinds of things are somehow uh, anathema to good songwriting is I think it's stupidity. I mean, the, the analogy I use from the other side of my life with writing is as a writer, you build skills, uh, specific skills in order to be able to tell a good story. You learn plotting, you learn characterization, you learn setting, you learn pace, you learn um, tone, um, you learn dialogue like there's you and you sometimes you have a natural gift for one or a few of those, but no writer is born with them all. So you practice and you develop these skills and you put them in your tool belt. And then over time, the stories you craft, you're able to sort of use these skills to render your story idea. It's the same thing with music. And so the way I've said it to people, I said, look, Dream Theater, they've simply got more tools in their tool belt than many musicians. It doesn't mean the music's better because music's always personal, but um, it, it means that when they feel like they want to go into a real technical flourish or a real uh, protracted instrumental uh, section in, in, a, in a song, because that's how they want to express the musical idea, they're just using tools that other musicians don't have, or maybe tools that other musicians don't want to use. But to point fingers at it and say that this is undisciplined, um, it, it just, like, to me, it just shows a bit of an ignorance and as a, for the, the, the process of songwriting. And, you know, I, I'm, I, 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 these debates are always happy. I'm not acrimonious <laughs> about it. It's just, you know, it's a skill and, um, correctly applied or, or well applied. It, uh, it, it can lend something to a song that, and, and dream theater, of course, does that in spades. 
Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, if you look at, you know, e- even if you go to the extreme side of things and like, you know, a change of seasons, you know, it remains interesting to the ear. You know, it's it's not just noodling for the sake of noodling. It's not just look at how many notes we can play. You know, even things, I mean, like, you know, perfect example, A Nightmare to Remember. When they do that breakdown in the middle, it's like one of the most beautiful things they've ever done. And it's in the middle of a song that's like drop tuned with blast beats. So, you know, but it yeah. all fits together. And like I, I think, you know, you, you phrase it perfectly saying, you know, the, the narrative and the story that it tells you know that I think I I completely agree with you that it, they do a phenomenal job of it, and I think it's with their most underrated asset. I would think because they well, are your your example of change of seasons a really good one because that's telling the story of a life. Right? So it's not it's very um, not even clever about it. Change of seasons is about birth to death, and as they go through telling this story over it's like a twenty two minute song, right? It's, um, yeah, but. It, as they tell this this story, um, they they use the music to reflect. There's 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 the the points. There's parts in that song, "Change of Seasons," that are really intimate and bare. There's parts where, because of the story they're telling, they're very aggressive and bombastic and expressing a certain kind of angst. Um, I think that's a fantastic um, um, example of how they use the songwriting in order to tell story and. You know, a, a lesser musician would not have all of the skills in certain parts to express the bombast because they just don't have they haven't spent time on the craft in order to do it. Now, they might find another way. And that's that's legit. But um, it doesn't mean that the way Dream Theater, you know, uses musical flourishes, um, speed, sort of this wall of sound at, at moments to express anger or frustration or even elation is not just as valid. Um you know, it's I sorry, I, I've I've had that argument so many times. It's um <laughs> but you you know, you never win. It's just it's just differing opinions. Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't know. I, it was interesting because when we asked John that question, he actually came to the end of it and said, You're both right. He he didn't get either side. And I was kind of bummed out. I was like, Come on, you got you gotta get my back here, John. Like I finally got the guy himself. <laughs> yeah. Well, John so. is um John is the most tactful guy on the planet. And yeah. I think you would agree. Like, um, you know, someone for whom the the way Dream Theater chooses to express itself when it really wants to go hard at something, um, you know, if it's not, if that's not sort of resonate with that, that's fine. It just means that that listener has a different, you know, it, they have a different um, button that gets pushed when they, when they need or want to have that feeling evoked by a musician or musical uh, phrasing or part. Um so John's very diplomatic there, but you know, uh, um, as objective as I can be, I just feel like it's just another tool and a musician either has that tool or they don't. Yeah. And, and, and I think to your point about the songwriting and you know, going back to when dream and day unite, it, it's always been interesting to me that they kind of established that within the first like three or four songs, of their very first record, you know, you have, um, you know, fortune and lies, and then you go immediately into this like poppy, like four or five minute jammer, you know, status seeker. And you're like, wait a minute, what, what's going? It's like they establish both ends of it, like immediately within the first couple songs. Then you've got, you know, the killing hand and, you know, stuff like that. And it's always been fascinating to me that they are able to do that and that it was evident immediately in their career. So um, th- that being said, I have to ask, I have to ask the question. Okay. Yeah. Do you have a favorite record? Oh, that's really, really hard. Um, 
I don't I, because um, I love them for different reasons. Um, I love uh, images and words because it's it's really where my love for the band got crystallized. You know, as as an influence. Like my sure. my quick story there is, I remember the day that that record released. Went and got it on CD. Uh, I drove a black Jeep. I put it in. It's me and my all my bandmates. And we we all we did was drive, listening to the whole record again and again. And it was bitter, really bittersweet. Because on the one hand, it, it was like this is just a phenomenal piece of work. Yeah. And the other side of it for us was we can't ever do that. This sucks. It was just like <laughs> we were like, oh man, you know, why try anymore? And yeah. So there was a heat. Uh, you know, so it's bittersweet at first. And then you pick yourself up. And you're like, no, that's what you want to climb towards as a musician. At least that's what we did. Um, but then the next record, Awake, is one that uh, I go back to more than I go back to the other records, even things like Scenes from a Memory. Um, Awake for me is, um, it, it's it's just such a such a great album. They were just firing on all pistons. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I love that one a lot. Now, having said that, uh, there isn't a record that I didn't enjoy a lot. Falling into infinity had a couple of tracks that I didn't listen to as much. Um, but then uh, the other side of that is the, the great tracks are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, John, John's probably most spiritual lyrics are in my view are from in that in lines in the sand. And yep. I love that track. Um, uh, but then fast forward, uh, to me, they had not taken ever taken so many chances as they did with the astonishing, which yes, you know, John admits it was a polarizing record because um, they they have a set of fans who who really just love the medley stuff, uh, and by the way, so does the band. You know, John's a it's what he talks about himself in terms of being the guy that brings the heavy chunk, um, and when Mike when Portnoy was in the band, kind of together, they really that was their signature. Um, and then the counterbalance was some of the other guys that had uh, other influences. Um, and I told John the other day, I got a chance to interview him for, for my podcast. I've been listening to distance over time more than anything. I mean, I know it's the most recent record, but, um, I haven't really gone back and it, to me, it's another example of the diversity in their music. I mean, it's always dream theater. Um, but that to me, that record has so many different flavors so it's a hard question to answer. I mean, if it was a desert island thing and I could only take one, um, I'd lie and take two. I'd have to take the astonishing <laughs> sure. And then it would probably be um, either images and words are awake. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, I definitely want to get into the astonishing for obvious reasons. You wrote the book. Um, so I do have a couple quick uh we got a couple questions for you, and then we'll get into the astonishing um, your novelization. So, uh, Kale McLeish, our buddy from Australia, he wants to know. So, as a writer, do you have a preferred lyricist in Dream Theater? Um, you know, I I I do and I don't. Uh, each of the each of the guys has a really different lyrical sense, and um, and so I really appreciate each of them for what they do. Uh, I think John is really, really underrated as a lyricist. Um, and of course he writes a lot of the lyrics whenever, whenever my young, uh, that was Petrucci, whenever my young yeah. does something, it's always really sort of special. He doesn't do it very often, but he always has something really Zen to say when, when he <laughs> writes something. 
Um, James, James gets right into the heart with his stuff. Um, 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 but you know, it, uh, if you, if you made me pick, um, it would be a toss up probably between, um, Petrucci and Kevin Moore. Um, you know, I only, Kevin only did a couple of records with them, but he had a, he had a particularly keen sense to use sort of regular language that, um, was really accessible. Yeah. Like six o'clock on a Christmas morning. Um, you know, there's a lyric in there that says, I want to talk about lifelong mistakes and you can tell your stepfather, I said so. And it's just the way that that's delivered. I mean, if he didn't have personal experience to, to underpin what the feeling of that, then he is just a master observer of the human condition. Uh, and in the way that the, the, he deli- the Libri del- delivers that, but I could give you examples like that from every guy in the band. So I, I know I'm sounding like Switzerland, and I don't mean to, <laughs> but they I think they're pretty thoughtful about like which guys approach which songs, um, because they they each they each have like a a, a lyrical strength, and um, and I don't know if you know I don't know if if they if that's deliberate or not, but um, I'm always happy to hear one of the guys going at a song lyrically because I know that it's going to have phrasings and the way that they're going to approach um, uh, a narrative or an idea, if it's more of an idea song that is unique to them. Um, So, sorry. So that's a little bit of a yes for everybody, (laughs) but um, I do, I do wish, I do wish that uh, uh, I, I wouldn't, I love Jordan Rudess I wish we had more songs early on with Kevin Moore doing lyrics uh, only because I think that um, that was a real gift of his. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. I, I think his stuff was, you know, even even something as weird as Space Divest is kind of just just the concept of that is interesting to, you know, he's this woman in a magazine and he falls in love with her. And it's like, well, if I meet her in person I'll lose that connection because she won't look like she does on the page. Like, and to be able to write a song like that, as odd of a concept as that is, it, it's really interesting, you know. For, where his head's at. So, yeah, I I completely agree with you on that. Um, second question, and we'll get into the novel here. Uh, firstly, love the astonishing novel. This is our buddy Adam Rishog. Uh, incredible work on that. Secondly, has there ever been any thought to doing something similar with another one of Dream Theater's albums, i.e., Scenes from a Memory? Yeah, um, everybody should lobby John about this. I've I've <laughs> I reached out to him, and uh, I said, you know, because I've had people ask me the same question, and a lot of them would love to see that novelized. Um, but you know, it's one of those ones that was written before um, Portnoy left the band, and he was a part of crafting that. And yeah. so it, it, and this is just the way in all of like uh, book publishing is, you know, when you have different folks that are involved in. The original formulation there there are just lots of a lot of logistics to to bring something like that to bear and they have so many projects you know that uh they can't just do everything so i'm hoping someday there'll be there'll be others um i think i've i think john was really happy with the way the astonishing came out so i think i i proved to him i can i can uh, you know do do right by their material um, but that's, I mean, that's the obvious, the obvious choice. And I, I have, I've had a lot of, uh, fans of the novel, uh, and of dream theater send me notes saying, you know, they should do that. So I, I encourage everybody to lobby the band <laughs> to, 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 
Uh, send in notes to the forums. <laughs> Change.org. Have Peter write uh, scenes from a memory. <laughs> we'll get that rolling. <laughs> um, all right. So, so let's start at the beginning here real quick. So obviously, as we said, you're, you're probably most famous to Dream Theater fans for novelizing The Astonishing. So tell the story about how you came to meet those guys. Because this was when you were working at Xbox, correct? And was yeah. this the God the, when they were doing the music for God of War? Uh, do I have that right? So, well, it, it's it goes back a little further than that. So, okay, um, okay. I, I was living in Salt Lake City when I the very first time I saw them live, and it was on the Images and Words tour, and they played this tiny club that, that my band played all the time, um, and of course, Dream Theater wasn't Dream Theater then, so they played this club that the the stage was like three feet off of the main floor. So I was, you know, on all of my band, we were there standing right in front of, of them. A lot of people didn't really know who they were. Um, and they played that record. And it was mind-blowing to be standing, you know. In fact, there's a moment James, like, hand th- put the mic down and let me sing a line from Take the Time. It was that's still a thrill when I think about it. But we, they were so cool after the show, they sat and talked to us. And so I got to meet the guys then. I don't know that I entered their memory because they sure they that was the same way at every show. Sure. But then uh, I ended up moving to Seattle, work went to work at Microsoft, and um, began to work in marketing and Xbox, doing like brand affiliation and in music. And I started to run a bunch of programs. And um, in in one of those programs, which I called Game for Fame, came with Fame. Uh, I got to choose artists to kind of do things with, and we'd play games over Xbox Live, etc. And I chose them because they're my favorite. Uh, I mean, I did everything. We did country. We did, you know, rap. We did all kinds of stuff. But I threw in rock and metal everywhere where I could. And that's when I got, you know, I flew out to New York for that. And we um, we went to this great dinner in Manhattan. And I got to, I, vi- I realized later, I visited the studio uh, at, at during that visit because I, I um, um, no, actually, let me get the story straight. I, I got. I went to New York several times, working for Xbox, working with the labels. Uh, there was a time I was there in, in Manhattan, and Jordan and I went to um, went to Delhi, and then we and then we went over to the studio. the The game with Fame was a different time, um, and I think it was around the time they had written that God um, that uh, that track for the game. Um, but the point is, is is I was fortunate enough over time through work. To get to know them, so then every time they came through town, uh, we would meet up. Sometimes we'd do dinner. Sometimes um, it was backstage uh, before, or after the show, and so the the relationship just developed to where you know we weren't talking every day, but um, we'd share mails. And when I had actually about a year or two before the astonishing was announced, I said to John man, you should let me do like a, a novel to a concept album. You should write a concept album. And I don't know if it was even in his head at the time, but when they finally announced Astonishing, I shot him a note. I said, remember when I told you, blah, blah. He <laughs> said, uh, he said, you know, I, we, our plan was to do a novel. Um, we just haven't gotten around to anything. So he, um, I said, well, let me, you know, let me do it. And he said, and he was very careful. Like he didn't just jump at it because he, at that point, hadn't read any of my work. Uh, he said, let's do like a chapter. And I said, okay, um, pick a song. And so he picked savior in the square and I went and I wrote a whole, um, scene to that with a whole bunch of extra stuff that isn't in any, cause he sent me the cinematics 
for the for the show live show. He sent me all the prepared materials, and then and and I said, "Do you want me just to be slavish to what you've done, or can I expand this?" He said, "Go crazy." So I wrote this really big scene that starts with um, starts very small, very s- subtle with some of the Savior in the Square stuff, and then build builds up. Anyway, he loved it, and so then we did the contract stuff, and um, and I went to work on it, and I he and I spent you know, I don't know, eight or 10, like three or four hour long phone conversations while they were touring, um, digging into it. And it was, that was a, uh, that was so much fun getting to spend that much time with John talking about the record and, and we do bounce ideas off each other. We would get chills when we'd come up with something really cool that would augment the story he had written. And that's, that's kind of the story of how the astonishing novel came to be. Oh man. It's like, what, so so, what is it? How, what was your reaction when you're like, okay, you actually get the okay to write a novel for your favorite band? Like, what is what is that reaction? I mean, well, it, <laughs> in the back of my head the whole time, um, this you know, this might be too good to be true. You know, tried to ground myself <laughs> grounded enough because I know a lot of writers for whom like getting to do a Star Wars or a Star Trek novel would be the height yep. of you know. For me, this was this was it, and it wasn't like this was a, sur- a sure thing. But I, I told John, I said, I, I and when I first approached him, I said, "Look, I've been a touring vocalist. Um, I understand music and narrative really well. Um, I'm a fan. No one's going to care about this project. Like you could hire, uh, they could have hired all kinds of writers to do it." Um, I said, "But you won't find another writer who who loves the music as much as I do, who's also like a science fiction fantasy writer." And mm-hmm. my own in my own writing, I had written about music. I had music magic systems. Um, like almost everything I write has is music factors in in some way. I said, "So there's just so many things that I think make this right." Um, and and he agreed with all of that. And then, but then he did want to see me, you know, put it to use. And and like I say, he loved that scene. And so once. Once he, uh, we had the call. I remember I was driving south on I five, <laughs> and uh, here in Seattle, and got on a phone call. And he had read it, and he said, "I love it." He goes, "Let's do it." And so I was just on cloud nine. But the better, the better moment was after I went through, and I mean, we did the contract, and then I I wrote the novel. And uh, after I'd finished the novel, I sent it to him, and he says, "Man, I'm so busy. Don't feel offended if I don't get to this right away." Um, I said, I, I get it. I said, but you need to read it before like we set it to publishing. And he said, uh, agreed. I think it was day, uh, there was one day and then the next day um, he said, can you jump on Skype? And I said, yeah. So we jump on Skype and he spent about two hours just showering me with praise <laughs> because he, he, had, he had said, I honestly had not anticipated this, but I read almost the whole thing in one sitting. Um, so he just sat down and he just loved what I had done. And that was probably my my best moment because I had I had worked really hard to be faithful to what they did, but to give uh, explanation to things that they couldn't. Like as an example, like a lot, there was a lot of criticism for Nefarious, really. What a, what a silly name. Um, no one would name their kid Nefarious and Faith. I mean, these were really on the nose. Yeah, I knew what John was doing. I knew that like it was shorthand to communicate ideas about the characters um, because it's all has to be presented in, in two hours on stage. Yep. So I got, I, I, I built logic for all of that. 
and um, inside all of that stuff. And he just said, I loved how you put together the world so that it all just kind of made sense. And, and like he had this really, really big map they'd created. And the story in, in the album only takes place in a very small amount in that map. Mm-hmm. So I made it a point to craft the novel to go all over that map. So if, and if you're a nerd and you go in and you look at the, the <laughs> map, there's a place called Fort Truth. There's all of these, these points that only exist on the map until you read the book. And then they become important. Yeah, that's the great Northern Empire. I, I noticed that like the, one of the first things I noticed as I was going through the book was, you know, wow, he's going all over the place. This isn't just in that little like section. I thought that was awesome. Um, so how difficult was it? to novelize this thing when it wasn't your vision i mean you know john said you know go crazy with it and you can expand and everything but you know as as you know some as a creative personality creativity usually comes from you know a clean slate you can do whatever you want it's your idea blah 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 so how difficult was it to take somebody else's vision and try to make it huge and expansive and you know, when it's not your inspiration, your initial inspiration? Part of the answer to that is, you know, because I'm such a big dream theater fan, pouring my heart into it wasn't uh, you know, a problem. Um, but the, the other thing was, is, is I, I did, you know, there's, there's, if you know the story from the record, you, you kind of know how it's going to end. Like I don't, I don't play fast and loose with critical points of the story. And uh, that was that was me deferring 100% to, you know, what John had crafted. Because if I had tried to end it differently or kill different characters and that kind of stuff, and it would have it would have been, I, I, I feel like I'd have gone too far. But that yeah. still left me tons of license for creation. So he crafted this po- this like dystopian world, um, you know, where music was kind of coming coming back uh, organically. Um, through one character, but was being sort of used as a point of leverage and control uh, from another set of individuals. And and I'm, I'm talking in the abstract, so you can kind of understand how I was thinking about it. I thought, well, okay, it, it wouldn't be just this area of the world that had been affected by whatever the cataclysm was, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or what the changeover had been. So I created some some of the mythology around how that happened and the, and the fact that there would be other kingdoms or empires controlling different regions of the world and they would necessarily have to have some relationship to each other. So this eventuated in me like thinking about, well, Faith isn't this, this shy retiring character. You know, she's, she's royalty. I, so I created of her an ambassador. She actually in the book is a really intelligent, important character. But some people, when they only hear the record, they, they don't really get that about Faith. She feels more like a Disney character to them. Um, when the whole novel opens, I have an entire huge... Um, uh, set of the the, pe- the poor people in in the world as John c- created it, coming up as migrant like migrant workers. Um, mm-hmm. they've been sent by the by the empire to go and work, and of course they make they're taxing this, they're making money off the backs of their labor. So you you start to get the the sense of a, a grander world, and then inside that it, the the actual like geography, there I have other political characters, um, and I really go deeper on. Uh, the resistance and um, the 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 fighting and the technology. So, John had kind of set this canvas, and because and you know because he had only had so much time in a record and with lyrics, um, he couldn't even communicate all the ideas he had written there. And but it was it was a it was a big enough thematic idea that for me to build on top of it 
all of the logic, um, uh, deeper world um, politics, deeper, a lot more about the culture, a lot, lot more about how the music works and how the magic of the music works. Um, he, they left all of that to me because he hadn't really ideated that. And a lot of, as a writer, that's a lot of the sort of like uh, fun meat and potatoes stuff that you usually do in world building. And so I got, that was all left for me to invent. And so there was a ton to do and still, and still work within, you know, what John had created. So it was, in some ways, it was a dream job. Like if, if you were doing something for Lucas, they would give you a story Bible and you would have to adhere to it, right? You can't just kill Han Solo because you want to. Let's let's not let's not bring up uh, terrible moments in my life. Come on, let's that, that's like the worst cinematic moment of my life, man. I have a Star Wars show too, and that was that was horrible for me. That was that was just horrible. So, <laughs> oh god, it's like a it's like a lightsaber through the chest, man. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, you say you had creative license and stuff. So I was wondering, you added characters in the novel that were not, you know, originally in the album, was that, was that a little bit daunting? Because I know that that can sometimes be, you know, for fans of something that's, you know, an existing work can be a little bit kind of, you know, interesting ground to tread on because I know for me, like I'm a huge Stephen King fan and there's been, you know, they changed the movies a lot and everything. And sometimes it's for the better. Sometimes it's not. And it, it, it can be really dangerous ground to tread on. So how daunting was that to actually, put something in that was not initially in the record in terms of a character. I, I didn't feel any compunction about it at all. Cause John had given me freedom. And I also knew at the end that um, I told John, I said, anything you don't like will change. So it's not a big deal. There was only one or two small things that he's like, he had questions about not that he wanted changed. He's like, I just need to understand this. And one of them, like it was already in the book. He had just like read it and, and, hadn't remembered it. And another one required me to go in and make a small tweak. But um, because I had this, I had the freedom and I knew that John was going to, you know, approve everything. Um, I didn't feel any reservations at all. And then as I started to get into the story, I just, I naturally felt like there were characters that were going to be necessary. Like with nefarious, there's a, a character in the book who's kind of a, a friend of his forever but they ended up on kind of opposite sides of royalty. Um, but nevertheless, he's still a confidant, still sort of a, an, an important figure in the technology sort of uh, society inside that world. Mm -hmm. And it became important to have that character to humanize Nefarious a little bit, have moments where we got to see his humanity. Um, he's not this snidely whiplash, you know, mustache twirling villain. Um, he, and and his, even his, the appellation of his name it has a reason and so um, there were. I needed. I needed some some narrative things to do in order to, um, I think, flesh out some of these characters, so that they didn't feel. Uh, there goes my thing. Yeah, <laughs> camera is down. So there we go. Sorry about that. That's I use right. the other one because it's a better camera, and then you don't have to see my ugly. <laughs> This is part of my recording studio. You're seeing back here where I do vocals and stuff. Um, <laughs> that, that's um, uh, that was just that, that was necessary work to um, you know bring in some additional characters in order to create uh, some of the logic for you know why the characters in the story that we have from John in, in the album do the things they do. Um, uh, and and so I know I wasn't I didn't feel daunted at all. It was. Um, and the fact that John just, 
he had so much confidence in me. And I think it was because we were friends. He, he knew how much I cared about the music. Um, and then the other thing that happened was, as soon as we kind of started down this road, James started reading all of my other books. Like everything I've written, James started yeah. reading it. And he started giving John book reports. Like, oh, I read Aurelian's book, you know. And so I, that, one of my geekiest moments is when they played Astonishing here in Seattle, I was down after the, the show. And, you know, there's always a few people who have like backstage passes. And I was sitting there waiting. And all of a sudden, one of the, the, the show guys comes and says, is Peter here? Peter Aurelian? And said, me. So he, he pulls me up. And I got to spend almost an hour just alone with John talking about uh, the book. And this was before it's published. Yeah. And while we were, um, we, then after a little while, Jordan came in with a, a couple of uh, press people. And then James came in. And we had a conversation after John and I had spent our time, all of us. And then when that broke up, James came over and sat right next to me in the chair that was occupied by someone else. And he started to ask me questions about characters in my other novels. Yeah. And, and I just like, I, I was floored that he knew the names of these characters in these other books, like not the astonishing book in my, in my, uh, my series with Tor. And I was just, and this is like my, my vocal idol, like not, you know, like the guy I've been loving and, and, and working to, he inspires me to try and be a better vocalist. This is the guy. And he's asking me about my books. That was a, that was a pretty sweet moment. Yeah. Uh, it's it's and that's one thing I wanted to I know it's probably like you know fanboying a little bit but you know I mean I think that's the one thing about these guys like the, the, you know, I always say don't meet your heroes and whatnot but like I've I've met them a few times and I I was lucky enough to interview uh, you know John Petrucci and I, I interviewed uh, Jordan I interviewed James and they are the nicest guys to the point where when I interviewed James for the Six Degrees tour. In 2002, like he, it was a 20 minute interview. He spent, he took 40 minutes off to just give me singing tips, because I said, "How do you last for three hours?" Just as part of the interview, and he he told me about the Citricale stuff he takes and about what he has in his cooler and all this other stuff. And then when we get to the show, he he had actually put me on the backstage pass list. That's a whole nother story. But when he gets back there, I I thanked him. I said, "Hey, thank you. You know, you're the reason that I got these passes." And he says, "Oh, you're John Drake." And I went. Oh my God, this guy's doing interviews all over the world and he remembers my first and last name. I was like, and that just cemented it. It's like, I'm with you. Like, he's one of my three favorite singers in the world. And I mean, they really are. I mean, it, it make they're such an easy band to get into because they are so humble and just so cool about stuff like that. And your story about, you know, him reading your books and doing the book reports and talking to you, but I mean, it's just, it's just more proof of that, you know? Yeah. It's, um, you know, probably like you. I've had the opportunity to meet other artists um, and some are great. Some are absolutely great. I, for my, my own podcast, I just interviewed Thomas uh, Holopainen, who is the keyboard player for Nightwish. Yeah. And he's like that. He is the absolutely most humble, coolest guy. So there, there are, there are musicians that are like that, but for every one of those, there are more who not maybe because they're narcissists or because they're mean or, or arrogant, but it could oftentimes be they're tired and hungry and, you know, just don't want to deal with another press person or, or even, even if it's a friend, they're just like weary. They, they don't want to be on again, you know, after doing a show or, or before a show, but that's not the case with these guys. They're the inexhaustible when it comes to, um, you know, good grace with their fans. Yep. And so as much as we all love them for their music, it's, it's not a show that they, I mean, both James and Jordan 
um, played on my record uh, with my band, Symphony North, uh, for free. No kidding. I didn't know that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, maybe I shouldn't say that because then, you know, but, but, <laughs> what it was is, is I, I needed a vocalist for a particular song uh, that, that I had. A, it has some really important sort of um, quiet, poignant moments, but also has a, a couple of high C's in it. And I, and I needed a vocalist that could do that. And I, I can only, at least for, for my taste, there's only a couple of guys on the planet that could do it. Yeah. James, one of them, I happened to know him. And um, so I, I, I paid for the other stuff, but he, I, I could, told him the story of the record and what I was trying to accomplish. And he said, man, my gift to you is to do this. And um, Jordan was the same way. And so the, the, you know, the, and when, when, and if I start to make money with that, they're going to get as big a checks as I can write to them. But they're, they're um, it's just an illustration that they're not, um, they are as genuine as the stories that you hear. And they're not just our stories. Uh, other fans uh, say the same. And um, that just makes them more lovable, you know, cause yeah. you know, you can admire the person as much as you can, the musician. Yep, I, I agree. My uh, my my co-host Brian and I actually we did the whole uh, meet and greet thing for the Distance Over Time tour. And when you get the picture with him, I asked the guys. I was like, you know, it's not that I don't like the rest of you, but is it cool if I stand next to James instead of the middle? And uh, they were like, yeah, yeah. And he, I mean, I figured I would just stand there and be like, cool, you know, throw the horns. And he put his arm around me and everything, and it was just the coolest picture. And then, you know, little stuff like that. And then, you know, to your point. I mean, James has the best quote about that. You know, when you said they're inexhaustible and they're, you know, good nature to the fans, like he said in Rich Wilson's, uh, you know, Lifting Shadows, he, he said, you know, you're doing these these meet and greets and you get tired and, you know, it's maybe it's like the 70th show of your tour and you're just completely burned out. But for the people coming to see you, that's their first show. Like, that's the only opportunity. So you have to be on. Like, you have to. Yeah. And that, that, that outlook is so admirable. You know, because yeah. like you said, like these, so many musicians, they just be like, well, look, I'm tired or I got this and they just, they're not like that. And it's, it's just, it's so cool. So I um, agree. You're, you're spot on there. Yeah. So, all right. So Adam has another question. This, this is interesting considering the, the difference in lengths. He says, I heard that you can read the novel along with listening to the CD in some way that they match up with each other. Is this true? It is true. The, the linear progression of the narrative is the same. Um, and I have had so many emails from people who have read the book who say as much as they loved the, the record, the, the, the record became much richer to them when they read the book. And so then they'd go back and they'd read, uh, they'd listen to the record again and they'd read the book with it. And the, it, this, they're very symbiotic. You know, and I don't. Well, there's some uh, there's some additional things, of course, in the novel because the novel is much roomier. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you you can re- you can listen to the record and read the book, and I mean, you could do them at the same time, of course. You, you would you wouldn't be reading as fast. You wouldn't be. Li- um, it would take you longer to read the book. Yeah. But if you if you if you read the book and you at the moments in the book with the chapters that are expressing moments on the record, if you if you do that. What happens is um, a bunch of the stuff that I've created begins to fill in gaps in the story that you don't get through the lyrics. Um, and and I mean, John did write some chapter. If you remember when they did disclosure on the whole record, they had these like summaries 
that they, I think they, that they put out on their website to kind of um, give some context. At the very least, I think it was in the big thick program that they, they had available uh, online and at the show. Yes. But the, the, what I've done is of course gone much, much deeper. So if you like the record or if you were, were tepid on the record and you're like, well, maybe if I understand the story better, it'll resonate differently. I've had a lot of people that like, I didn't, really liked the record very much, but I, I gave it a chance with once I read the book. And then what happens is as you kind of progress through the narrative on the record with all of the other information you're getting from the novel, it changes the way that you react to that record. I, I interviewed John just last week uh, for my podcast and he said, he said something he and I've talked about, which is what he wishes that they'd done with the astonishing is that they'd released the book um, way before they even toured or released the record. Um, now that it couldn't have happened that way just because um they were they had so many creative endeavors to bring that record together. By the time that they got even that I even talked to them about the book, it was it was too late. Mm-hmm. But it, in, a, in a perfect world, the book would have come out, then they would have gone on tour and then and they would have still done the special engagements at the theaters. And then when they were at the theaters, they would have that's when they would have sold the album. So that just like a Broadway show, you've just witnessed the 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 music you've you know for a lot of people they would have read the book and then you come out and you buy the record just like they do on broadway and then and then general availability after that he re- he really wishes that's how they'd done it but instead yeah. it came out like a like a every D- D- dream theater album and without all the context some fans just didn't react well yeah i think it, it, to me it, it's like the, the experience of the record prior to the book was always it was almost like listening to a movie in a way, I guess. It, it's always been really hard for me to describe, but it was it's a fascinating experience. And I think what was really cool about the book is that it's almost like it's it's almost like the book is the project and the album is the soundtrack. It's like it it, it it's almost a whole different way of looking at the record once the book was out, which which I personally loved because I you know I'm a huge fan of the record and I thought it was brilliant you know, from the get go, I, you know, a huge fan of that. And it, it, it brought new context. It brought it to life again for me and made it a whole different listening experience just in the way I perceived it, much less, you know, the story stuff that you put in there. So I, I thought, I thought that was cool. And I thought, you know, I did listen to your interview with John, um, which, which is fantastic. And we'll, you know, we'll get, we'll get into breaking, you know, uh, uh, breaking absolutes here in, in a little bit, your, your new podcast. Um, but your interview with John was phenomenal. And that was, that was interesting when he said that, because that really would have been a cool way to present it, you know? Yeah. He, um, I, I, I wish that, I, I don't know that he had that idea before, but I think as, as much, I mean, they did, they released the game. They had, uh, all of those amazing visual visuals for, uh, made by a company in Canada, I think it was for the live production. Um, they had graphic artists in multiple places. They had the symphonic um, score being recorded in multiple places. Like they, it, there was so much going on that um, even though he'd always envisioned that it could be a movie and it could be a Broadway show and it could be a book and all this stuff, there was only so much time in the day. So um, he was happy that I had reached out and we did our diligence to get it all going. Uh, but then as he was able to kind of look back, like I said, he he had this other, he had this epiphany on how he wishes that they'd been able to release it because he, he feels a little bit like we're saying, which is if for a lot of people, the, the, the narrative portion of it really helps a lot of it jump to life. 
And and some of that narrative experience can be had just at the live show because all the visuals and the way James sings the songs and does a little bit of sort of in, inhabits some of the characters, but so much more so with the novel. And and what the novel does is it takes John had a, some other written material that was never published except in the book. In the book, we published all the stuff John ever wrote, uh, summaries, his full like kind of it's kind of like a short story. We put all of that in there so you could see the genesis of this in John's mind. <clears throat> and then what happened is over those eight or 10 long phone calls, I began to show him what the novel could be and uh, to, to brainstorm and, and share ideas with him. And, and so we did some, some world creation in those calls and all that stuff went into the book and you just don't get that without the book. So I, I think that because I love live theater so much and I under understand i guess or at least i really appreciate how narrative is is expressed in the soundtrack from a live production my mind kind of filled in a lot of the gaps like i had i had friends who didn't understand when james was transitioning between point of view characters inside a single song yeah um confusing for them that stuff like that was all easy for me i didn't even think about that um so there there was some if you if that wasn't something you're acquainted with you know it could be confusing um, but, you know, I, I think they've got the uh, someday they'll do another concept album. I mean, they're a progressive band someday. So if they if they do, I'm hoping I can get to work with them again. And and I can guarantee if they do that, they'll uh, they'll the, the timing of things release will be different. Yeah. So a quick question on the astonishing, because you mentioned this a couple times and. You know, it, it, I, I hate having to ask this question because it's so interesting to me. But obviously, you and I are enormous fans of this record. I, I just think the whole undertaking is amazing. I love the story. It's it's just such a unique experience, especially for the time period that it was. You know, it was released and even conceived. You know, everybody's attention spans are so much shorter. And Dream Theater, already a progressive metal band, was like known for these ten minute long songs. They're like, well, now here's a two and a half hour long double disc, you know, story like thing. Were were you surprised? Because I really was. Were you surprised at how polarizing of a record this turned out to be? Because I really thought that if if any fan base would wrap their arms around this, you know, and welcome it, it would be Dream Theaters. And yet, it's proven to be really the only really polarizing record that they've done. Yeah, there was a little there was a little bit of polar, polarization with Falling into Infinity. Um, just because there were a couple of tracks that Desmond Child, I think, got his hooks in deep enough yeah. that yeah, didn't quite dream theater. But um, that aside, yeah, you're you're right, and I was I was surprised because um, because they are a progressive man, they are a progressive metal band. But the inherent in that is is taking chances, doing different things. Um, there there really shouldn't be anything sonically off limits. You know that uh, well. This isn't dream theater because it's this or this. Um, the fact that they are they are to me by definition a band who's trying to to press against the envelope. Um, I I made an assumption I think a little bit that everybody kind of has that same idea about who they are, um, and I have this idea about fandom that's different than a lot of people. I, I am if I'm a fan of a band, I'm a fan of the band. I don't get um, it's just the way I think it's not better or worse. It's just different. But the way I think is if I'm a fan, I, I, I look forward to the different kind of musical expressions from a group, like in a, as an analog, like I'm a, I'm a fan of Queensryche. I certainly have 
records that I like better, but I never stopped listening to Queen Drake because everything wasn't Operation Mindcrime or Rage for Order. Um, so, cause I'm a fan of the band and, and I, and I, I take time to kind of try and get where they're coming from and, and why the evolution and why the changes. Um, and so when they, I, I kind of just, I, I made an assumption that like the, the dream theater community was a lot the same. And I think what it showed us is that, um, there's, there's people that legitimately have a perception or their fan, their fandom is sort of centered on, on certain certain of the the expressions of dream theater and and specifically like there's fans that just love the metal stuff like yeah. the the you know they love those records where uh where mike was really kind of getting them you know there was a bunch of the grout the the, the screamy vocals and yeah. um they were they were going at, at a at a at a different kind of tone and stuff and there's some fans that's the stuff they like best um there's other that you know and and so what and it's all legitimate like i'm not i'm not banging against any of it um but it what astonishing showed me was that you know inside the broader dt community there's fans that they like different eras of the band quite differently and that's if you go onto their facebook page you page you see that all the time you know someone will say i love this you know and for someone else that's their worst album yep. um but you know i mean the if i can put a, a a spin on it the fact that we get to have that debate's a good one you know, with a group that is still producing new material after 35, 40 years. Yep. Yep. So last astonishing question, and this is going to be self-serving for you and I, I fully admit it, but you know, you and I are both vocalists, obviously you're on a professional level and, you know, can we just talk for a quick second about how absolutely brilliant James's vocal performance is on that record? I, I don't, it, that was mentioned in all the reviews. Thank God. You know, even, even the critics that didn't like the record, they mentioned that his vocals, it was the best he'd ever done. But I think even in the fan community, I don't think it gets recognized enough for what an incredible performance that was by him to, pl- yeah. to portray all those different characters, but still sound like himself and just the emotion. And it was unbelievable. So, I mean, I know. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I mean, there was this early, early on, it was dismissed pretty quickly. But, um, and, and I think this is in the interview that's in the book because I asked John about this. But there was some thought about using different vocalists to voice yep, the different that's in there. characters. Yep. And, um, and, and James, James, I think very thoughtfully said, I, I want to do this. I can do this. And so, uh, and John said when he got back, you know, they started getting back the stuff. Uh, he, he was so proud of James because James really did. Now you can only change your voice so much because it's you, but if you listen, you can, you can hear the colorings and, and um, the things that James does to, to give distinction to the different characters. And um, it's probably the thing that makes me the very saddest about whenever I see this kind of stuff kind of rise up in the conversation, it, it, you know, when people bang against, against James, because um, when you, he is such a phenomenal vocalist uh, that it's taken for granted. I think um, how good he is, and and of course it's all personal. Like someone else likes Bruce Dickinson better, or they or they like this kind of vocal approach better. And I know that a lot of the a lot of the metal now doesn't use this sort of cleaner approach that that James is so good at. Yeah. Um, but you're, I think you're a hundred percent right. I think that what he did on that album was phenomenal. Um, and of course, if you want to, if you want to 
debate, you can pull up live uh, recordings, phone recordings of concerts where someone's not perfect. And, you know, the biological instrument of the voice has a different set of problems than every other instrument. I mean, yes, they're all played by humans and humans make mistakes, but it, the, the it's complicated um, beyond that for a vocalist for a thousand reasons that we can talk about. And the fact that James put forward so many amazing performances and even attempts the regimen that he does on a, on, on a grueling tour, it, it should be something that we're just like applauding by itself. And I know yep. I sound very hero worship or fanboy there, but like, even if I take my, my fandom out of it, James, um, um, what he does and does so beautifully, like in the one, the, the, the live show that they just released when, that they recorded at the Apollo in London, James is phenomenal. And, and he does, I mean, there's places where he could have tapped, he could have let off the gas and he doesn't. Yep. Uh, anyway, the, the, your point is right. hundred percent. Right. And um, I'll defend that's how James and I very, very first became friends is back before the larger social media stuff. They had uh, like a list serve called Yitzy Jam and oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. fans would get on there and have their discussions. And someone was banging on James even back then. There was a live thing out then, you know, he, he oh, he wasn't perfect, blah, blah, blah. And I was at the time taking vocal lessons with a guy by the name of David Kyle, who trained Jeff Tate, Nan Wilson, and so awesome, uh, yeah. And and so I had I started to really have a deeper understanding of voice. And uh, when I saw this conversation, I just I got really angry because I just felt like people were coming from a place of ignorance in their criticism. So I just wrote this very thoughtful thing up, and I posted it that talked about. In most operas, there's something there. This there's this concept, um, most often called the nine. I think it's called the nine C's, and it's it's about the number of like really big notes you'll hear in an opera in the course of an evening. And I said, if we take that as like a, a some sort of benchmark for for big voice and big uh, performance, then look at what James is asked to do uh, in terms of duration. And uh, you know, James starts in a different gear than most vocalists do. I said, uh, it's really kind of amazing what we get to hear him do. And um, out of nowhere, James emailed me and thanked me for posting that. And I think it's because, you know, it can be thankless to be a singer who's just expected to perform at that level when, of course, there's going to be nights you make a mistake. And uh, anyway, so yes, the answer is yes to your question. (laughs) Nice. No, I I, I completely agree. And I I always, uh, it's kind of a joke, you know apples to oranges but as a monstrous van halen fan i i tell people that kind of get into that side of the argument i say look you could be a van halen fan and had to have listened to david lee roth the last couple tours so if i were you i wouldn't complain very much <laughs> like you know but yeah i mean and, and that's the thing that people don't understand about you know the, the the voice as an instrument i mean what really goes into it to sound like that and to take care of yourself i mean it's an around the clock thing and yeah. I mean, it's it's so difficult, and especially, you know, for him to be doing it at that level for you know thirty plus years, is just it's it's staggering. And it is, it is because there's, I mean, there's simple things that, that a lot of people don't like. Just speaking, but like the thing you learn when you start to take vocal instruction is speaking is the enemy to the singer. So now think about you know being asked to do press and yeah. pre-show meet and greets and, um, you know, uh sound check like you're using your voice constantly and it is it is it's a tax so that by the time he gets to the 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 show and that's just one element 
that has nothing to do with um, physical fitness and diet and sleep, which all of these things are like really important factors that have a bearing on voice in a way different than other instruments. Mm-hmm. Then, you, then it's compounded by the fact that the the um, catalog that James is asked to sing in terms of vocal athleticism. It's just it's it's a it's a um, really important point. I think I, I wish more more Dream Theater fans had um, some patience for. That's all. Yeah, and, and I, by the way, that's a small percentage. I think most people like James. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I just I had to bring that up since I had a fellow vocalist on here, and being a yeah. James delivery fan, I knew that we could you know jump in James's corner and go full on Team James. Pictures of yep. James behind me. <laughs> Right. I noticed that as soon as you jumped on, I was like, yes. All right. Team James. Um, all right. So a couple more things and, and then I'll let you go. Um, I, I, I would be remiss if I did not ask you about the Wired for Madness novel. I did not know that you had done this. And that is fascinating to me that, I mean, the astonishing is one thing. That is a project. It's, you know, two and a half hours long. But you novelized Wired for Madness and not the entire record, but just that 30 minute long title track talk about that a little bit that's fascinating to me yeah um jordan reached out to me and he sent me a very small um write-up uh like a page of something uh and i don't know i don't know where it had been generated about um his title track and i read it and i said i said you know like there's a lot of things i could i could punch this up for you i said but really it probably deserves something bigger. What I wrote was not a full novel to, in terms of like technical definitions. It mm-hmm. was it was novella because I think it came in at about twenty three thousand words or something. But it it um what it I, I so I said, do you want to do this? And he said, yeah, that would be really cool. So um I what I and there wasn't nearly as much source material because all I really had was the lyrics. Um, he, there wasn't any, there was this little write-up thing. I don't know where it came from, but it was real. it wasn't very deep. Um, it was like, and it was like a, it was only just a couple paragraphs. So I, what I did is I sat and listened to the song several times and, um, poked at the lyrics a lot to sort of extract a story that, that made sense of it and had the same kind of, um, big idea feeling about, you know, being wired in and what that might look like. And, um, yeah, and I, I asked uh, Jordan the same thing. I said, "Do you can I just go crazy here?" And he said, "Go crazy." So, um, and I, when I, you know, same thing. I said, "I want you got to prove it." Uh, so he he and his wife both read it and loved it. Um, and that record doesn't get enough press, I don't think. Uh, it's been out for what a couple of years now. Yeah, eighteen. But he, uh, that was that was a fun project, just because the source material, what it's about, is really interesting too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that begs the question. So when is your uh, James Labrie novel, your John Mayung novel, and your Mike Mangini novel coming out? You're, you're, you're the official novelist for the members of Dream Theater now. Oh, I don't, I don't know that there's an official novelist. Uh, the, I, would, I would work with any of these guys anytime uh, to, to create more narrative around their musical work. Uh, so if they ever ask, you know, and I won't be shy about, you know, asking them if there's something they're, they're doing that, um, you know, they'd be interested in talking to me about. Um, but I know, you know, James has got some solo work stuff. I think a couple of records that he's working on it. I mean, they're all doing things. So maybe over time there'll be some more. Uh, I cert- I certainly hope so. Right. All right. So speaking of the writing, so, I mean, you, you've got a pretty, pretty lengthy, you know, bibliography. So, 
Um, you got the Vault of Heaven series, which is like the you know basically the core of what you do. You know, the Unremembered Trial of Intentions. Is are you are you continuing with that series? Is that going to be an ongoing thing? Yeah, that's from Tor Books. Tor is like probably the the world's biggest fantasy and science fiction publisher, mm-hmm. um, and that is an ongoing series. But it's on pause. The reason it's on pause is um, on my fiction side. I, I I got the opportunity. There's a writer in in fantasy by the name of Brandon Sanderson. And he's a kind of a one of the more successful big fantasy writers, and here are our kind of friends. And um, I kind of I kind of pitched him on doing a collaboration. So I'm in the process of writing the first book in that series, which is kind of a uh, contemporary fantasy series, which by the way features a heavy metal singer as a lead character. <laughs> uh, awesome. And it's the reason he wanted to do this particular story with me. He says, "I know you know the music and the culture." It's really cool. It's set in London. It's it's uh, it's got a big thing about the past and necromancy. Um, it's a lot of fun. So my my Vault to Heaven series is kind of on pause while I do this because it's just kind of a really big opportunity. Um, and then you know I'm, I write short stories here and there. I get asked all the time to be involved in uh, included in anthologies, uh, different topics. So uh, I do that here and there around the edges. But um, I will continue with the Vault to Heaven once I get this other stuff done. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, so you did. You did. A, you were just part of an anthology that actually turned into uh, a novella, "The Sound of Broken Absolutes." Like that. That that was really cool. I saw that on your website. Like, talk a little bit about that, real quick, because that was for a buddy of yours that that got diagnosed with cancer. Correct. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine, and he's a writer, and um, he'd had cancer before and beat it, and then he got it again. And I, he, you know, at the time he wasn't married or anything and, and, um, and he had other friends, but I went down often to sit with him. Um, he'd go in for his, his treatments and he'd just be drained and I'd go get him tacos and we'd just hang. And, um, and so when I got asked to do a, a, a story for his first, he, he did a big anthology to pay, he had like a quarter million dollars in debt because he didn't, he's a freelancer. He didn't have health insurance. Yeah. So he decided to call on all his friends to write him a story. He could publish this anthology and try and pay back that money. And he knows everybody in the industry. And so um, the, the, like the really huge names like George Martin, he knows all those guys. So uh, I, I wrote him a story and it just became really personal um, it, uh, for me to, to react to mortality kind of. And so I wrote the sound of broken absolutes, which turned out to be a novella. And in the in the, my big proud moment is in that novella that's or in that anthology that's got every big name in fantasy. Um, my my novella was the best reviewed, and in fact, it was so well reviewed. He said, "You need to publish this separately so just people can just read this." And sure. then, I, so I did, and that's that's so you can see the sound of broken absolutes. It's in Barnes and Noble and Amazon and stuff like that. Um, yeah, awesome. that's where that was from. Very cool. Well, in, uh, last thing. We would definitely be remiss if we did not talk about Breaking Absolutes, your new your new podcast on your Twitch channel. Um, you're speaking of Dream Theater. You're going to have James coming up on Sunday. You're going to have Mike during the week. You're going to have Mangini on there. So you know you, your first episode was with John Petrucci. So you're hitting all the stuff. So um, talk a little bit about your podcast. I mean, it, I, I I tuned into it. It looks great. It sounds great. You got some phenomenal guests on there. Like you mentioned, Tomas. You got John Petrucci. I, Tyler Bates was just on there. Yeah. Um, so talk a little yeah. bit about, about the show you just started. Well, I, um, I, I love talking about this stuff, uh, as you may be able to tell and, and, and <laughs> do you, and so I thought, well, um, how do I, 
I had a selfish reason, and that is uh, I have a band called Symphony North that's very much more like Trans-Siberian Orchestra and uh, wrote a, a, a rock album, a, a rock opera, and we've been we've done a, a couple of small tours with it, um, and it's and this is the one that James and and um, Jordan both play on or are both on, um, and I have some others uh, some other big names on it too, but I I was trying to think of ways that I could start to have conversations about rock and metal in a way that would um, you know allow me to organically sort of share my musical life. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, I really enjoy talking about this. I know a few people that I can use to sort of start and boot it up. And, um, so that, well, and, and so obviously breaking absolutes is a riff on the novella we just talked about. Um, and that's when I, I reached out to the dream theater guys. I reached out to Thomas cause, um, I, I know him. Uh, I reached out to Tyler. I've, I've since been put in touch with a few, uh, a few others that, uh, I'll be announcing soon. Um, I just got it. In fact, just last night I got a, uh, a note from Jordan. He says, dude, I want to come do your show. So he's actually <laughs> going to be, so my next three podcasts are all, are all dream theater guys. Um, <laughs> nice. Um, so yeah, I mean, and then of course I'll, I'll continue on with others, but um, it's a way for me to talk about and And my, my ethos on my show is kind of, I feel like uh, rock and metal in particular um, get kind of pigeonholed the the community and what it's about and and um, I thought it's just not true. There's there's a little bit of of what's valuable in that music that's I think uh, could be valuable to anybody. So why that's why breaking absolutes. It's the idea of tearing down the stereotypes and and ta- talking to creators that are that are making music that I think you know could be loved by anybody. Maybe not every track from every band, but I um, I think it kind of gets short shrift. Um, and that's, I, I'm biased because I love it, but, um, uh, you know, before, before I started loving rock and metal, I was listening to new wave music, which I still enjoy, but, um, I kind of eschewed the guitar centric music until I started to hear other bands. So my, my goal is to expose more people to this kind of music as a way to try and get, you know, broaden the genre, not, not broaden the genre to bring, bring more people to the genre. Yeah, sure. So where can where can people where can people find the show then? It's it streams live on Twitch. I have an exclusive deal with Twitch for the live component. So if you want to um, if you want to join the chat so that you can ask questions and stuff, very much like you're doing now, that's I do it on Twitch. So you can find me at, at um, Twitch.tv/PeterOrulian. Um, but then once that's done, uh, I federate that to YouTube and, and all you know Apple Podcasts all the podcast places. Um, so if you want just the audio um, and then, I, but I also put the video on my Facebook page too. So if you want to read on demand version, you can go to my Facebook or my YouTube channel and see all this stuff. Awesome. Well, man, I can't thank you enough for coming on this. This was a blast. I, this, this was, I was so excited for this. It was even better than I hoped. This was, I got to fanboy out for over an hour. That was excellent. Um, you know, well, i I, I appreciate you letting me come on to, to talk Dream Theater. I, I like you. I can never get enough of it. Right now, I appreciate it, man. Like I, I, I did, I did want to say, like you know, the 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 Petrucci episode that you did. I really appreciated. You know, you had mentioned Scarred to him, and you talked about the emotional impact. And like, you know, I thought it was really interesting because you know, I my friends always laugh at me because whenever I talk to you know musicians, and other people, I do I do tend to nerd out in a little bit. You know, I turn to a little kid and whatnot. But you know, I I, I really loved how you kind of you really 
brought that emotional component into your interview with him and you told him about you know the lyrics of scarred and how it makes you feel i i just thought that was great it was so personal and it's it really separated it from a like a quote-unquote normal interview and i thought you did a great job man i really really like your show i'm not just saying that because you're on it uh on my show and i'm really looking forward to it so you know again i, I really yeah. do appreciate that. that's um you know and what you just described there like i feel like telling those kinds of stories about how the music, uh, you know, helps um, you in whatever way that is, it, it person can personalize it to somebody who maybe doesn't listen to it and help them see, Oh, you know, I think it start, starts to g- help people get past the idea of a music as, as not, you know, not relevant to them. Um, because, you know, once you start to hear someone's personal uh, stories around it. So I I don't know. I hope I hope people dig that. I I can only just be me. So that's what that, that's what my podcast is about. Yeah. I mean you you can tell you're genuine in it, which I think was really cool. So you know, oh, I, that's that's what I appreciated. So anyway, uh thanks again for jumping on, man. Uh really yeah. appreciate it. Uh Brian will be back in a couple weeks here. He again, he's off doing the whole dueling piano thing, so he's probably making dick jokes somewhere while he's making 300 bucks. So <laughs> Um, thanks for checking out Talking Into Infinity, a Dream Theater podcast. You can find us uh, pretty much wherever podcasts are available. The replays are available on YouTube. And again, thank you very much for jumping in the chat. It's good to see you, Adam. Good to see you, Kale. Uh, we'll hang out again sometime soon. And uh, until next time, for my buddy Brian and for Peter, I am John, and we will see you on the next episode. Thank you very much. Hey everyone, thanks for checking out Talking Into Infinity, a Dream Theater podcast. Just wanted to remind you that we want you to be a part of the show. If you give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, at T-I-I-D-T podcast, we post the schedule of when we are recording the show live. It is a streaming video platform on our Facebook and YouTube pages, and it has a live chat feature where you can comment on the show, ask questions, And we can bring your remarks up on the screen and have you drive the conversation. So, again, give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at T-I-I-D-T Podcast. And come hang out with us and be a part of the show. Thanks again and carpe diem.